Beloved listeners, you've often heard me talk about Alan Turing's code-breaking efforts at Bletchley Park in the UK during the Second World War and how a grateful nation rewarded him with chemical castration for the unspeakable crime of being homosexual. Now, while the Brits were focused on decoding messages coming in from the war in Europe, over in the US, the centre of action was at a place called Arlington Hall, next to the newly built Pentagon and across the river from the White House. What you may not know is that 70% of the code breakers at both Bletchley Park and at Arlington Hall were women, and the average age was just 19. It's a story that so intrigued my next guest, she had to write a book about it. Ellie Marnie is an author of crime thrillers, including her latest Killing Code, which tells the story of the girls of Arlington Hall. And while she's uh, often been on the New York Times best-selling list, it's her first time on the Little Wireless program. Ellie, thanks for travelling down from Castlemaine in regional Victoria to the Melbourne studios. And how did you first hear of the girls of Arlington Hall? I watched a TV show. Um, There was a show, I believe it was a BBC production, called The Bletchley Circle, about a group of women who had been code-breakers at Bletchley Park during the war. And uh, many years after the war, they come together again to solve a mystery in their local area. And I was intrigued by it. So I spent some time diving into research around Bletchley Park. That's kind of my thing to spend a long time obsessing over things that I get interested in. That seems to be a, a writerly thing. So, yeah, I looked into Bletchley Park, read extensively about it, and I thought, oh, there'd be a wonderful story here. And then uh, through that route, I took a little sidestep into looking at allied code-breaking. So the partners of Bletchley who were in the US. And um, then I came across this one line in a book called Code Girls by Liza Mundy, and it said that um, Arlington Hall was a former junior college for young ladies, originally opened in 1927 as a girls' school. And I thought, right, that's it, that's my way in, because teenage girls are pretty much my wheelhouse. (laughs) Now, during the recruitment process, they were asked two questions. A, do you like crossword puzzles? And B, are you engaged to be married? Why? Uh, They didn't want anybody who was attached, you see, because it was already such a highly secret program that they wanted to ensure that everything had been done to make certain that everybody was going to stay quiet about it all. I mean, Narlington Hall was set up in June of 1942 by the US Army. Uh, It didn't deal with Navy codes, by the way. They had their own facility. But by... 1942, Arlington Hall was all ready to go. But in fact, women had been recruited already and secret letters had already started going out to young women in in colleges, in teaching colleges and universities by September 1941. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, I understand no to the notion of attachment, but yes to puzzles because uh, studying code 
is in fact the biggest puzzle of all. And you say it's also rather like studying poetry. It is. I mean, when I first started writing this book, I thought, oh no, uh, I am terrible at maths. <laughs> so I will never be able to write a book about all these code-breaking women who are obviously really good at maths. And in fact, another friend of mine, Lily Wilkinson, uh, she's a wonderful YA author, she said, oh, I couldn't face all the maths research, uh, even though I liked the idea of writing a code-breaking ladies book. But then when I dug into it a little bit more, I discovered that, of course, they started recruiting within the STEM subjects, within uh, maths and sciences and astronomy. But they also realised that they needed people who were lateral thinkers, who could think outside the box and who could follow patterns and rhythm. So they started recruiting young women who uh, were good at music or poetry or languages. And uh, that was how Anne Cara Christie was actually recruited. Another attribute had to be patience because some of the codes took months or even perhaps years to break. Yes, absolutely. It was deeply boring work. <laughs> uh, you had to you had to sit at a little table in what was probably a very cold uh, because fuel was rationed, of course, so you know everything was a little bit underheated. Uh, you were sitting in a cold room at a large table, all crammed in together, uh, poring over little cards or transcript letters, uh, paying close attention to detail and going over them again and again and again. And it, it, it was a huge, uh, it involved a huge amount of patience, yes. On the one hand, we've got the notion of the lone male genius in, in Alan Turing. On the other, what you describe as the, the work of the hive mind. Yes, I use that phrase in The Killing Code because there was something very special about the way the women who worked as code breakers worked together. I mean, we we often ascribe or focus on this idea of the towering genius like Alan Turing. So it's a lone individual, almost invariably male in history, who, um, you know, finds the key and, and figures it all out, uh, you know, at a stroke of genius. But, but the women worked in a very collegial way, didn't they? They did. It was very much about collaboration because they used to refer to it as the crew job. <laughs> it was a gigantic team effort. And because there were so many of them living in this hothouse environment in Arlington Hall, they were all living together, working together day to day on 24-hour rotation shifts. They, they were crammed in there. And in they the hothouse, they were hot bedding, weren't they? Yeah, they were, <laughs> even in the city, because so many of them had um, arrived in Washington, D.C. at that time. There was nearly 200,000 young women had flooded into Washington, D.C. to fill defence industry jobs, including as code breakers. So you, they became... You remind us of the, the times were tough in that hems rose because there wasn't enough fabric and all the silk was going into parachutes, which gave a few problems when it came to stockings. Yes, there were a few problems with stockings. Uh, you couldn't get silk, obviously, because it came from Japan and nylon was all being used for parachutes. So you had to resort to alternatives like 
wiping gravy on your legs and um, putting the using the eyebrow using your eyebrow pencil to put the line down the back of your legs so it looked like you were wearing stockings because you couldn't go out without them. I think that's very useful advice to many of our listeners. You know, times are tough. <laughs> I think we could bring that back as a fashion. I didn't know there was a black segregated unit at Arlington also run by a broker named William Coffey. Tell me about him. That was really difficult to dig up the information about the segregated unit that worked at Arlington Hall. It's one of those situations where the contribution of the of the black defence industry personnel was very much um, either deliberately hidden or simply not thought important enough to record. And yes, I've tweaked history a little bit by adding the unit to my book in 1943, but in fact they didn't get started until 44. And William Coffey was originally hired as a janitor uh, at Arlington Hall. But eventually he became very important towards setting up the segregated, what they called the segregated unit, that studied codes coming through commercial channels like Mitsubishi. I see. So they were, they were commercial code crackers rather than military codes. That's correct, because the US was still trying to do business. Um, so there were still, you know, open lines of communication with some outside territories and even some Axis power territories and, and corporations. So they needed to be checking all the time that anything that was being passed along those channels wasn't compromised. In some ways, the ill winds of war blew some good for women in the West, didn't it? Because it, it gave them all sorts of unprecedented opportunities. It was a period of massive social change in the US, just as it was in Australia. You know, there were so many young women leaving home for the first time, travelling across the country to work in Washington, D.C. They became the backbone of federal and war department agencies and over half of them stayed post-war. So it completely changed the makeup of the city and it changed every, every kind of arrangement at that time. It was the first time women could wear pants or earn their own money outside the house. Um, or develop a career and live independently. So it made a huge difference, yes. Quite a few of your characters are queer women. Why is that? I thought it was really important. Uh, and also I thought, well, of course there would be romances with all the young women crammed in together. Of course, you know, a percentage of them would have, would have fallen in love or had relationships together at that time. Just as much as it was a social change for women generally and for society as a whole. It was also a really important time for queer women. For the first time, they could pass unnoticed and unremarked. It was a relatively a time where they could be relatively open and have a kind of camaraderie and acceptance that they hadn't had before. There was, of course, a huge inrush of government girls, quote-unquote, to Washington, D.C., wasn't there? Oh, they... They were cramming them in in all sorts of places. They would hotbed. They would uh, one girl would take the, the day shift where she would sleep, and then she would get up and go to her night shift job. And another girl would come and take the bed for sleeping in the night. Well, um, there was a hundred thousand girls flooding into the city. So many. Um, it was just it, it was just very strange too. There were a lot of mixed feelings about them because. Um, although women were instrumental at every stage of the war, they were welcomed, you know, 
by everyone was telling them that, oh, you should go out and release a man to fight and take that job so that, you know, the men can go off. But of course, every man that you're releasing to fight, you're potentially releasing to go and die. So there was a certain profound psychological impact as well and also a resentment. Tell me about the backlash. There were different instances of uh, propaganda around women being given uh, appropriate jobs and appropriate pay. They weren't allowed to earn the same amount of money as men were in the jobs that they were taking on. There was also uh, some instances where um, women were assaulted or, you know, prevented from entering bomb shelters during air raids and all these sorts of things. So, yes, it definitely did happen. Perhaps the most famous codebreaker that you tell us about, uh, Ellie, was Anne Christie, another gay woman who went on to become, heavens above, Deputy Director of the National Security Agency. She was quite amazing. Now, Philip, do you remember when I told you about how she had come not from the maths and sciences, but from the humanities? She was an English major at university, um, Anne Cara Christie, and she became one of the star codebreakers of Arlington Hall. And then, of course, yes, many years later, she stayed on and became the first female deputy director of the NSA. One of the amazing things is that she and her... Uh Nearest and dearest were amongst the first Americans to learn of Japan's planned surrender because they deciphered the code on August yes. the 14th and 45. Yes, she was, she was uh, a leading light in code breaking. And then later on in her career in, in the NSA, she became the first woman to, um, I guess, make way for computers and encourage the agency to begin using computers for the first time. Now, Ellie, all of these women were, of course, sworn to secrecy and many took those secrets to their graves. So how, if you'll forgive the unintended pun, did you dig, up, dig them up? <laughs> um, well, some of that information was released by the organisations that I I did my research with. So the Veterans History Project through the Library of Congress, I found out um, some information about Anne Cara Christie there. And the NSA also has an oral history interview series where I was able to find interviews with people like Wilma Berryman, who was another extraordinary code breaker, um, and the George C. Marshall Foundation. So I, I had to follow a series of little clues. It was a bit like unravelling a mystery myself, trying to find the information that I needed to build the book. And Code Girls by Liza Mundy was really critical because she's that's a towering work of academic research. You make the painful point that while the NCA collected oral histories, they were only of white women. Yes, they were. So a lot of the information about black women like Geneva Arthur were lost. Um, and I had to really dig uh, through the NSA channels to find information about the black code-breaking unit at Arlington Hall. Um, even though uh, dis anti the anti-segregation had come in, or rather uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's ban on discrimination in defence industries, there were quotas for black employees that they had to fill, even, even though all of those things existed. A lot of those records were just uh, either hidden or destroyed or just never found. 
Well, we, you've told us of Anne's uh, brilliant career, but what of the other code-breaking women? What happened to them after the war? Well, some of them um, went on to become, you know, uh, defence industry personnel and maintain their positions as code-breakers. I mean, the NSA is still located at Arlington Hall. That's a, an NSA facility that, even now, and the Army's also works there. So um, some of them stayed in their positions. I mean, of the 200,000 government girls who came to Washington, D.C., over half of them remained in the capital. Um, and people like... And then there were other people who just, you know, went back, got married, started families, and then just never spoke of them. I was talking to another author, Kirsty Murray, who's a lovely author, and her, she was saying that her mum worked for the RAF in uh, the code-breaking unit there at Victoria Barracks in Melbourne during the war, and she never talked about it. She, I mean, she'd taken an oath. And they took their oaths very seriously. So while you're writing about code-breakers in your fictional account of these women, you also create a mystery that needs code-breaking, don't you? <laughs> yes. Um, yes, The Killing Code is about four code girls who uh, must join forces to break the code pattern of a serial killer who was murdering government girls in Washington, D.C. So I had, to, I had to not only figure out what was going on in Arlington Hall, but also what was happening in the wider capital area. Talking to Ellie Marnie, author of The Killing Code, published by Alan and Unwin. G'day, potties. If you like to learn from history's mistakes as much as we do here at uh, Edley Nell, or you want the whole backstory on the big issues in the news, check out Rear Vision on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 